The reading this morning is taken from Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 31, and you'll find it on page 1036 of the Pew Bible. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Coming to do the preach. Shall we just pray? Father, thank you this morning that we can just stand amazed that you are a radical God. You love us with radical love. And we bless you. And Father, we pray that as Phil preaches to us, Lord, we might have a new sense of that and what you want us to do with it. So, Father, bless every word, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. So we're on to our our second habit uh, of eating. And I can't imagine why Peter chose me to preach. But I'd like you to just to hear the reading in a different version from the message. How can I account for the people of this generation? They are like spoiled children complaining to their parents. We wanted to skip rope, and you were always too tired. We wanted to talk, but you were always too busy. John the Baptist came fasting, and you called him crazy. The Son of Man came feasting, and you called him a lush. Opinion polls don't count for much, do they? The proof of the pudding is in the eating. I like that last sentence. The proof of the pudding in the eating. So there was clearly a confused view about Jesus and John the Baptist and what was going on. So we're going to look a little bit at what Jesus, uh, what we learned from Jesus and eating. Perhaps this is your picture of the most famous meal in the Bible. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper. Uh, obviously a very stylized view of that important meal. Uh, and if you believe the Da Vinci Code, full of all sorts of images and messages and codes. But realistically, uh, it would be a much more relaxed affair. Uh, those are still incredibly highly significant, um, celebrated around the world in many different forms, many thousands of times a week. So let's have a little brief look at how the early church uh, behaved around the subject of meals. Emperor Julian was very peeved with Christians in the 4th century Rome because they practiced such an amazing form of hospitality that they were taking over the empire. He complained to his officials that one of the Christians' methods for perverting the empire was their so-called love feast or service of tables. And there appear very ref- lots of references to the separation of the Eucharist from the love feast. So the love feast was this sharing of lots of food, that sense of giving expression to Christian brotherhood, but then often ending with the, the Last Supper, the remembrance of the communion. 
One writer has suggested that if you were to ask the ordinary Christians today what a Christian meeting was like in the days of the apostles, uh, then you'd probably get different answers. An evangelical Christian would probably say it consisted primarily of preaching and singing. A charismatic Christian would probably reply that it primarily incorporated worship, praise and the exercise of miraculous gifts. An Anglican might reply that it was just a celebration of the Eucharist. However, all those responses are right, but a rather dominant form of worship at the time was the centering around a meal. And sadly, within a century of Constantine's conversion in AD 300, that part of apostolic worship declined and disappeared. So we're left very importantly with the Eucharist, but that sense of a love feast and eating together uh, disappeared. And in every culture, in every culture since the beginning of Christianity, you still find that invitation to share a table is profoundly meaningful still. So, why eat? Well, that one's easy to answer. Why eat together is perhaps more interesting. I don't know about you, but I often find the table is that great equalizer in relationships. You eat together, you discover interesting things about people. You share stories, you can share your hopes. You share your fears, your disappointments, and actually you open up to each other. And we can open up in the same way to people and share our faith. Uh, Hirsch and Ford have said in their book, sharing meals together on a regular basis is one of the most sacred practices we can engage in as believers. Missional hospitality, to use a dreadful phrase, missional hospitality is a tremendous opportunity to, to extend the kingdom. I like this bit, though. We can literally eat our way into the kingdom of God. I like that bit. But I am clear, to use a favorite phrase of our Prime Minister, I am clear that we do not need to have a well-prepared and well-rehearsed after-dinner speech. As you might expect, there are lots of aphorisms around food, and, and I just had to dig out a few. The first is my favorite. Stressed when turned around is desserts. Think about it. I love that. Stressed when turned around is desserts. If you really want to make a friend, go to someone's house and eat with him. The people who give you their food give you their heart. And I love this one. Friends buy you food. Best friends eat your food. (laughs) Nothing, not a conversation, not a handshake, or even a hug establishes friendship so forcefully as eating together. Now, I could stop here, and I could say, wouldn't it be great if you all invited each other to your your own homes and you had a lovely time together? You undoubtedly would learn lots. You'd increase the depth of your own faith. And and undoubtedly, it would work. It would improve. Try it. It works. Please try it. Scientists agree. I have to bring in some science, as you'd expect. Uh, Scientists agree. So there's a lovely experiment they they did, the negotiation experiment. So here is your role play. Here is your manager trying to set a wage rate, and here is your union man trying to push that wage rate up to earn even more. They did an experiment. They put the two, these two people playing a role play. Lots of different people tried it. They put in front of them a bowl of sweets. And they had a bowl of sweets, and they, they, they negotiated a rate, and then they tried it with peanuts. Nice salty snack, tried it with peanuts, negotiated a wage rate. Then they gave one sweets and one peanuts. They reached agreement much, much more quickly when they both had the same food. Having two different foods, it took forever to agree at the wage rate. When they they shared the same food, they agreed. Sounds interesting, doesn't it? 
The, the, the second bit of it besides is the big lunch survey. These researchers from Oxford revealed that people who ate together are much, much more likely to feel happy and satisfied with their lives. And, and they looked at this in lots of different ways and they conducted a big survey. The sad thing is the data I've put up on screen. 70% had never shared a meal with any of their neighbours. 40% had never eaten with a community group of any sort. 20% said there had been more than six months since they'd shared a meal with their parents. And their conclusion from this big bit of research was that in increasingly fraught times, when community cohesion is ever more important, making time for joining in communal meals is perhaps the single most important thing we can do, both for our own health and well-being and for that wider community. Challenging, isn't it? However nice it is, though, to improve the quality of our fellowship with each other, there is still more to do, and I love this idea. Perhaps before we invite people to Jesus or invite them to church, we should invite them to dinner. I think that, that makes my heart leap, but for some, that will be incredibly releasing, because it's quite hard to ask somebody to come to church. But for some who don't like doing meals, it's challenging. However, it's, 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 let's have a look at that. Let's have a look a bit more about inviting people to, to food rather than just worrying about getting them through the doors of the building. Let's have a look at what Jesus did. So I've, I've summarized this in three phrases. Radical meals, radical grace, which we've certainly sung about this morning, and a radical guest list. Radical means characterized by departure from tradition. Innovative, progressive doing something new or different. Jesus did quite a lot of that. Lots of meals that Jesus uh, had, and I'm not going to go through them meal by meal, and there are plenty more of them. But many of these were challenging. They challenged the culture of the time. They were questionable actions. They caused people to ask questions, to observe us, to say, what's going on? Uh, ben Mayer says that you know, in Jesus' time, a person wouldn't eat with someone of a different social standing, and certainly never with somebody of a different religion. But Jesus turned that on his head. You know, Jesus ate with them first, then they became Christians. But the meal with Zacchaeus. You know, Jesus went to a meal in his home, and then the sinful tax collector became a Christian. It wasn't Jesus only went there because he'd become a Christian. Someone has made this other lovely observation about Luke's Gospel. Even when Jesus is not eating, references to food abound. It is safe to say that throughout the gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. So if, Jesus, if it works for Jesus, it's got to work for us, hasn't it? So what of our own experience here in church? I'm sure we can all think of, of things that we've done here as a fellowship. Senior citizens' lunch, coffee living room, messy church, gathering, men's breakfast. Stepping out, I was challenged that I'd forgotten the walking group and their lunches out afterwards. Lots of ways that we get together and we do share our life, our experiences together as a fellowship and indeed with others. Um, in America, there's a dinner church, which sounds very good. But I did come across a new one in the mid, just before the snow in the Lake District last week in Ambleside. <laughs> I leave you to imagine what on earth goes on there. But anyway, <laughs> Margaret, come and join me. Oh, sorry. <laughs> we used this next slide when we presented coffee in the living room to the bishop. Um, a while ago, but I'm, I'm going to ask Margaret two questions. She's promised me shortish answers. Um, Margaret, coffee mornings abound. What's the difference about coffee in the living room, and then what surprised you? Uh, well, I've got, I've got Angie's permission to tell this story. 
Um, it's, it's something that happened um, before Coffee in the Living Room had come about. And she and I both found ourselves in situations where we could no longer do what we had been trained to do, which was to teach for different reasons. Um, and we were meeting together, praying together, um, talking about how we could serve God. And on my heart was a desire to reach out the, to lonely and isolated people. And Angie's got a huge heart for praying for people for healing. But we didn't know how we were going to go about this. How, how you know, what, what do we do? One day, I um, rang Angie up and I jokingly really said, um, do you want to go on an adventure today? And she said, yes, I really do. Um, and uh, we set off to David Austin Rose's. Um, maybe not the most exciting place, but, you know, it had lunch involved. Um, and um, Angie, on the way, uh, said that she'd had a picture of a lady in a pink cardigan. And she felt that if we saw that lady in a pink cardigan, um, that we, she particularly, but I was the backup, um, we, we had to um, go to her and ask her, if she wanted prayer for healing. And I, I thought about this, and I thought, yeah, I'm up for an adventure with God. I can cope with um, sitting in a quiet spot uh, in David Austin Rose's praying for somebody. That's, that's okay. It's not too dangerous. Um, and uh, we, we, we looked at the roses, and uh, no lady in a pink cardigan. I was feeling quite safe at that point. Um, and we got into the cafe, uh, and it was very busy. And I went and ordered us some drinks and sat down at the table and Angie said, she's over there. <laughs> oh, no! Uh, and, um, uh, and as I looked, I thought, Lord, you're asking me to make a complete idiot of myself in front of not just one person. She was sat with two friends in, a, in, the, in the middle of a busy cafe. This is not what I anticipated. Um, and we... but. But I, by that time, I was knowing, I knew that, and she was right, we had to do it. And I had to support her in it. Um, and uh, so we thought about it sensibly and thought, we won't interrupt the meal. Um, we'll wait till they've finished. And um, I think the thing that hit me at the time was, Lord, when I think of what you've done for me, what you did for me on the cross, um, why am I getting worried about getting a little bit embarrassed? If you're asking me to do it, then it's okay. Just do it, you know. And uh, so we did. Um, and um, I have to say that Angie was the one who explained that we didn't normally do this. Uh, and, and actually, she said, I don't want prayer for healing, but I would like prayer for something else. Um, and um, she, she wasn't a Christian, but I think she did mention that people have, somebody had prayed for her before. But she was into some good vibes, good thoughts, and anyway, that's what happened. So we sat down at the table quite relieved, thinking, Lord, we don't really know why that happened, why you asked us to do it. But we felt it was part of the lesson we were needing to, to learn in terms of, you know, how he was going to use us. We finished our coffee, and Angie looked up, and she said, Margaret, you're not going to believe this. In the exact same seat was another lady <laughs> with a pink cardigan. <laughs> and I have to confess that at that point, we thought... We know God's got a great sense of humor, but actually, we don't think we can do this again. We're going to get thrown out. Um, anyway, that kind of, for me, sorry, Phil, sums up, in a way, um, what is different about coffee in the living room. Um, because God opened doors in really unexpected ways. We've tried to let him lead the way. We've tried to listen. 
to his prompting. And above all, we've had to be prepared to take risks and to forget all about being embarrassed. Um, we started just over five years ago. Two of us stood at the hatch with a lot of cake and cups, thinking no one's going to turn up, especially as it was snowing. <laughs> it really was. Um, and now, if you, well, if you told us then that now, five years later, we get between 70 and 100 people every week, we wouldn't have believed it. Um, and, and, you know, um, there we were thinking we were complete idiots, but actually we were doing what God had asked. Um, and we never know what will happen next. We didn't plan the hearing clinic. We didn't plan the Keep Fit group. We didn't plan the Christmas tea. It's all happened because of what other people have brought in and God's, uh, the way God's led. And our biggest adventure now is Alpha. We're scared to bits. We've never done it before. But it feels like God's saying this is the right time. So, yeah, those are kind yeah. And what of what sums you it up. Sorry. I'm taking longer than I should have done. Sorry. Very quickly, three things. One, the way that barriers have come down. The generosity, the kindness, the thoughtfulness that people show to each other, to us, and to the various charities we've supported. Secondly, there's something that I find quite sad. Because as we've got to know people better, we've discovered that there are some people there who've had really bad experiences um, because they've been treated unfairly, they've been judged, they've been shown unkindness by people who called themselves Christians. And Coffin Living Room has been a bit of a bridge builder at times. Um, and, but it means that, you know, people have really judged Jesus as well. Um, and Phil will tell you, I am not perfect. The people who work with me off in the living room will tell you I make mistakes. I really do. I know I do. And I know, it's just made me realize that if I know I've made mistakes, or if somebody tells me I've made a mistake, I need to put it right. I need to say sorry. I need to do the best to put, put things right. And, and that's something I didn't expect to be surprised about, but it's something that's challenged me. But, you know, I, you know, it's one of those things. That, and we're all on the front line, aren't we? Wherever we are, wherever we're doing, even just walking out the front door, people notice us. They notice what we say, how we do it. Um, and that, that was a lesson to me of, you know, if you've done something to upset someone, try and put it right. Um, and the third thing, which was a surprise, I had a conversation, oh, two or three weeks ago, um, with someone who's been coming to Coffee in the Living Room for a while. Um, and they've told me quite a lot about their life recently. And they are one of those people who have, if you like, suffered at the hands of somebody who's called themselves a Christian. Um, and I wrote down what they said. They, they said how much they love coming. And um, I hadn't asked them. They just came out with it. And then they said this. When I come here, I feel safe. I feel I'm among friends. I'm with people I can trust. Now, I'm sure that when Jesus sat with tax collectors and sinners, they probably felt the same with him, and hopefully a lot more as well. Thank you. Radical grace. We've seen some of that from what Margaret's just said. Radical sharing meals played a vital role for Jesus. 
They were a real physical sign of his grace, tangible expressions of that grace. Margaret's already explained what Angie and, and she did in terms of having to do something as a result of God's prompting. But God wants us to do the same. He wants us to open our homes, our, our meals to those without a faith, to the poor, the lonely and the hurting. That's the radical grace he talks about. Radical grace and sharing a meal is, is, is more than just eating food together. That shared meal is friendship, it's community, it's hospitality. In that short time on earth, Jesus welcomed the marginal, confronted the self-righteous, and he came for those who were messed up. He had accepted invitations from the Pharisees, from the tax collectors, very different people, but he ate with them, and something of him rubbed off on them. Something of, of him came through in those meals. In our reading today, the critics tagged him as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was meant as a put-down. But Jesus wears it as a badge of honor. Friend of sinners. Who else would be a friend to them, a real friend? Who else would extend himself for sinners to the point of dying? No one. He was that real friend of sinners. And so on then to the, we've had the radical meal, the radical grace, and now the radical guest list. Jesus did a pretty good job at displaying that he would share a, a, his, a meal with those who other people would say they'd be blemished, they'd blemished by, they'd be tarnished by eating with them, they'd be unclean. And we have a huge opportunity to use our homes and tables to enact that same form of radical grace with people who perhaps we wouldn't normally come across. Gathering people around our table is a way of telling our story and having gospel-centered, faith-centered conversations. We need to be prepared to eat with people who, who have no faith, who maybe don't behave as we would want to behave. There's a lovely story, and I forgive me for repeating, there's a lovely story of a Southern Baptist minister who said his neighbor claimed to make the best margaritas in all of Oregon and who regularly, regularly hosted margarita and poker nights in his garage. As you might imagine, all the men from the neighborhood attended, but the Baptist pastor never accepted an invitation, believing it was a stronger witness to his faith not to associate with drinking. The pastor was asked how many times his neighbor had asked him any questions about his faith in Christ. Never. The pastor was asked how often he'd shared anything of his faith with his margarita-making neighbor. And again, the answer was never. You see, it's not questionable for a Baptist pastor to refuse to go to a drinking evening. That's not questionable. Of course he wouldn't go. So the pastor was challenged to accept the next invitation. The neighbor nearly fell over in shock. The Baptist minister joined the gathering in the garage and, true to his convictions, he just drank soda, but no one minded. He ended up having more conversations about his faith than he'd had in ages. Now, I'm not suggesting that we open a casino here, but for that minister, at that time, in that place, with those friends around him, he did something that was questionable. He shared hospitality. It wasn't his own hospitality. He shared hospitality. He grabbed an opportunity where he could do something questionable and share his faith. 
Who would you ask to a meal? Who, would you, who could you join in with? It can be so simple. Maybe you invite somebody to coffee in the living room. There really is no age, minimal age. You can come when you're young, like me. <clears throat> um, you could get men's, men's breakfasts. Maybe there's another eating group you could help organize or, or join in. Can you invite a neighbor for coffee and cake, tea and biscuits, soup and sandwiches? Dinner parties may be great for some, but so are walks and picnics. Stepping out is a fantastic thing to invite people to. Maybe you could join another group um, that has nothing to do with church. The key challenge, it seems to me, is that your life is questionable. That's a lovely headline, isn't it? Your life is questionable. But it's questionable because friends and neighbors are curious about you. They're curious about your story. You don't need to preach. You don't need to have the after-dinner speech ready. It's about sharing bits of your story. And where better than around the meal table, over a sandwich, over a biscuit, whatever. But Margaret's emphasized quite clearly, it's not you must do, you will do it ten times a week. It's about being alert for those God moments. Those moments when God says, why not invite them round? Why haven't you invited them? Could, could, you bring that, could you do that with somebody? Could you join that? Be alert for those God moments. When God is saying, now is the time, go on, invite them. Who needs to be invited to sit in the empty chair at your table? Who needs to hear part of your story? So for me, eating missionally is radical meals, doing something new. Radical grace, sharing something of God's grace. But with a radical guest list, inviting people that you wouldn't normally speak to, to your, to your home, to your place, to your picnic, wherever it is. Who could you invite?